Good morning, everybody, and welcome to Kingsway Christian Church Online. We're so glad you're tuning in with us today. My name is Matt Nickerson. I'm the lead pastor here, and we're wrapping up a series called Pause. The whole idea of Pause is we're coming in the middle of this worldwide pandemic out of a quarantine and trying to figure out how to get back into everyday life. And before we just jump back into the way things used to be, we know things will never quite be the way they used to be. But before we do that, how do we make sure that we take the best parts of what should be leave behind the worst, and maybe some lessons that God's trying to teach us along the way. I've often said before, I don't have any insight from God that God caused this pandemic. But I do believe with all of my heart, God is going to use this pandemic. He's going to use it in your life and in mine to get our attention and help us to focus on the most important things. My friends Brett and Andy over the last couple weeks did a phenomenal job of pointing us to Jesus, pointing us to others, and today let's take a look at one more thing. You ready? Luke chapter 13, we're going to look at a story of Jesus and see what he has for us today. Verse 22, then Jesus went through the towns and villages, teaching as he made his way to Jerusalem. Someone asked him, Lord, are only a few people going to be saved? This is a great question and one I get often. So rather than debate and theorize and philosophize about the answer, let's just see what Jesus says. He said to them, verse 24, make every effort to enter through the narrow door because many, I tell you, will try to enter and will not be able to. Once the owner of the house gets up and closes the door, you will stand outside knocking and pleading, sir, open the door for us. But he will answer, I don't know you or where you came from. Then you will say, we ate and drank with you and you taught in our streets. But he will reply, I don't know you or where you came from. Away from me, all you evil doers. Now let's just stop there. There's a lot of things going on here and I don't want to hang out too long because I think for the most part, his point is clear. Jesus doesn't necessarily answer, will only a few be saved? What he does say is that there will be many who will miss the boat. In fact, I think missing the boat is an appropriate analogy. If you go back into the book of Genesis, when, when Noah is building an ark and everybody thinks Noah's a crazy man, but then when it starts raining and Noah and his family are in the ark and God shuts the door of the ark and other people are knocking and say, let us in, let us in. We don't know what's going on. You were right. You were right. Why didn't we listen? But the door was shut and it was too late. And I think Jesus is taking us back to that time and saying, pay attention, keep your eyes open. And literally, he says here in the NIV, make every effort to make sure that you are inside the boat. Now, should we then take away from the story that we are saved by effort? We are saved by human effort and the things that we do. And the answer is no. And number one, I know that from reading the entirety of scripture. I am not saved by what I do. I am saved by what Jesus did. What Jesus did is done. However, there is still a point where I have to look at, pause, evaluate my life, and see, does my life line up with the life that Jesus Christ gave? gave me in his resurrection? Does my life line up with the commands, the call of God in my life? Or are there things that I'm doing, what he calls here evildoers, are there things that I'm doing that are opposed to God's way? And if so, how do I stop doing those things and start living my life for him? 
Now note, Jesus says, before we make another point here, verse 28, there will be weeping there outside the door. There will be weeping there and gnashing of teeth. When you see Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and all the prophets in the kingdom of God, but you yourselves thrown out, people will come from east and west, north and south, and will take their places at the feast in the kingdom of God. Indeed, there are those who are last will be first, and first who will be last. Well, there's so much more we could say about this particular parable. Let me make a few points. One of the problems that we have in America as we read our Bibles is we read it through the lens of what, does, what, what is God saying to me? But we have to remember, these verses were first spoken to a specific group of people. Now, the gospel writers of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, in this particular case, Luke, they wrote down the stories of Jesus, the teachings of Jesus for us, and they kept for us the ones that had the most value for all of us. We know that John's book says there are so many stories. If you were to write down all of the stories of Jesus, there wouldn't be enough books to keep all of them together. There's just too many. Well, that's probably a little bit of hyperbole. The point is, these stories don't necessarily tell you everything that Jesus did. There are plenty of moments I have questions about that aren't included. But these include the main points. So the first question I have to ask when doing Bible study is, what did Jesus mean to the people that he's talking to? And then I have to ask the secondary question, how does that then apply to me? And the people Jesus is talking to are the Hebrew people. And God chose the Hebrew people out of the nations of the earth, and they were going to be the people that he was going to bring his laws, his ways, his righteousness, his goodness, and eventually then his Messiah, Jesus, through them, so that they would be a light to the Gentiles. And that through Jesus, the promise to Abraham would be fulfilled, that all nations would be blessed. So this passage, it's not that it does not apply to you and me. It absolutely applies to you and me. But it first applied to the Israelites. And Jesus is warning them. And you see it in the story. And they'll say, but look, you walked with us in our streets. Don't you remember? We sat at your table. And Jesus says, but I didn't know you. And I don't even know where you came from. Don't go telling me you were sons of Abraham. Don't go telling me you had the laws of Moses. I never had a relationship with you. And that's where we start to get the application to us. Jesus hasn't walked in our town in Avon. Jesus didn't sit at a meal with us. However, we've heard the truth of Jesus taught. And maybe you're sitting out there. At some point, you even received the teachings of Jesus. See, we cannot boil Jesus down to simply an activity, a system of do's and don'ts. And this series on pausing can dangerously lead you to that place. But what we can do, what we must do, what Jesus is challenging us to do is to have a relationship with him. When he says, I didn't even know you, can Jesus say that he knows you. Does he walk with you? Does he talk with you? Do you talk to him? Do you do all the talking or do you do any of the listening? We call this thing prayer, talking with God. And prayer is hard. It's hard work. In fact, I find it fascinating here in this text, in there in the NIV, when it said make every effort, this is actually the Greek word agonizomai. 
agonizomai. It's where we get our word agonizing. I don't know if you knew that or not. And the whole idea here has to do with struggling, grappling, wrestling to win a prize. So there in that context, when Jesus is asked the question, will there be only a few people to make it into heaven? His response is wrestle with life, grapple with God, make every effort to win the prize, give it all that you have, agonize over what you have to do and over what you can't do, agonize over it, but don't simply go through life. It takes effort. It takes work. It takes hard work to show yourselves approved for God. And have you ever noticed how much of life feels like a wrestling match? A lot of it is. In fact, here at the end of this parable in Luke chapter 13, Jesus references Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. That's part of the reason we know he's talking to a Hebrew crowd. Those were the fathers of the faith. Abraham, his son, Isaac, and then handed down to his son, Jacob. Jacob gets his whole name from a wrestling match with God in Genesis chapter 32. He has this wrestling match where he stays up all night long wrestling with this angelic figure that we believe scripturally is Jesus in the flesh. And he showed up to wrestle with Jacob. And at the end of the wrestling match, his name is actually changed to Israel. One who wrestles with God and with man and overcomes. Such a powerful statement. His whole identity is changed when he enters into the wrestling match with God and with man. And God is calling us to pause Slow down our life. Stop just doing everything the way we've always done it. Wrestle with him. Wrestle with life. And really ask those hard questions about life. Am I doing everything that I need to do? Pausing is about discovering God's heart and desires for my life. That is the point. What happens when I pause? What happens when I agonizingly wrestle with God is that the Spirit of God begins to speak and to move and to shape my life. Have you ever noticed in prayer time that as you're speaking your prayers to God and you're asking God to intercede and to move and to act and to do, as that is happening, have you ever noticed the process of the Spirit revealing to you how sometimes your asks, your requests, your desires are really sometimes quite selfish? Maybe it's just me. Possibly I'm the only one. But I often come into prayer with an opinion and a perspective, a way that I'm seeing the world that I think is absolutely the right way. And what happens as I talk to God is that God begins to change my heart, shift my life, change my perspective, help me to see things in a new way. And that's one of the major blessings of pausing. This is completely biblical, by the way. Paul tells us in Galatians chapter 5, he says in verse 17, The flesh desires what is contrary to the spirit, and the spirit what is contrary to the flesh. They are actually in conflict with each other so that you are not to do whatever you want. In other words, Paul is helping us to understand that our flesh, what the Bible calls the sarks, that's the Greek word, it's weak. Remember in the garden when Jesus is in the garden and it's the night of his crucifixion, his arrest, 
uh, his arrest, I guess. And, and all of this is unfolding and he comes to check on the disciples and he's begging them, pray for me, pray for me, pray for me. And they keep falling asleep. And he says, the spirit is willing, it's the body that's weak. This is the kind of context that Paul is drawing this from. Your flesh is weak. Your flesh is selfish. Your flesh wants what it wants. And it's less concerned about other people. And it's less concerned about pleasing God. It desires what it desires. But God has given you his spirit. And where the spirit of the Lord is, there's freedom. There's life. And it's inside you. And God is battling with you. So you don't do what you want to do. But instead, you'll do what pleases him. This is the power of the pause, of trying to draw into that quiet place, to listen to the voice of the Father, to hear what he says is good and bad, right and wrong, and then obey, and then to follow in his footsteps. Remember, and I referred to this, oh, I've referred to it many times this year, I think two or three times already, when Jesus is asked, teach us how to pray, in Matthew chapter 6, he teaches us what we call, and many of our Catholic brothers and sisters call, the Our Father. And if you'll notice here, just the very first part of that prayer, it says, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Do you see it? Your kingdom, your will, your name, be holy, be praised. What, what would change in your prayer life? What would change in your everyday life if you were to simply bring that perspective to your prayers? Your kingdom come, your will be done. Not me, not mine. Over the last week, um, I've had the blessing, the opportunity to be at two funerals and one wedding. Two funerals and one wedding. And it's kind of crazy to see new life and parties and celebrations at weddings and the celebrations and the grieving that comes at a funeral. And it is a mixture of both. And while doing both of these events, what is amazing is as I'm performing the wedding and I'm talking to the married couple, I'm trying to communicate to them how the number one thing that they need to do is to figure out how to outserve the other one. And that what will happen more often than not is that we will get hardened and prideful and full of ourselves and therefore we will start to fight with the person that we dearly love. And you're, I'm telling them this in their wedding in front of the people watching in this backyard, this outdoor wedding. And I'm telling them this and they're looking at me like I'm crazy. I'm like, this is a wedding. I'm like, I know, but I want this to last more than a day. I want this to last more than a month. And what's going to happen is God's kingdom has to come. God's will has to be done on earth as it is in heaven, in you and through you. You've got to outserve the other person. The funeral that I performed this past week it was from a dear member of our church. And as I'm hearing stories from his wife and then later on the phone with his son and I'm trying to capture these stories and share them to tell the life, to tell the story of this man from our church, a great man. If I were to say his name, many of you would know him or know his family. And as I'm, as I'm gathering his story together, there was a season of his life where he walked away from the church. He walked away from God. 
And I, I sensed no concern whatsoever in, in his wife about his life and his salvation and his faith. And as I'm on the phone with his son, there was like this anxiety about something in particular. And he said, I'm pretty confident of this. And I said, look, our hope, our hope is in Jesus Christ. And I know your dad. He loved Jesus Christ. He calls me back the next day and he said, you are absolutely right, Pastor. I don't know why I was even, he's just wrestling through it. He's grieving through it. And he tells me this powerful story. He said, there was this thing about my dad way on. He walked away from the church in large part, not the only part, but in large part because of tithing, because this idea that he would give money to the church. And that was a real problem from him. But somewhere along the way, the truth of God's word was revealed to him. And he realized that generosity was something that Christians do. It's something that God desired from us, that God blessed us to be a blessing. And he said, he said to me, he called me, he said, I'm so happy to tell you, my dad not only got it, he went beyond that because he loved God and his kingdom so much much. But the reason that he got there, his son said, is because he had to enter into this wrestling match with God. God had to get him to the mat. God had to wrestle his will to the floor. God had to take him down to the count and help him to see, look, I have blessed you abundantly. I have provided for you. I have met all of your needs and I'm not going to stop now. You can trust me. And that's what happens when we pause, when we slow down, and when we reflect, you see, listen, while prayer could be a wrestling match, God wants you to win. That is his greatest hope for you is that you will win. I want to show this to you. In Matthew chapter seven, the very next chapter there over from Matthew six, where we were just reading the Lord's prayer. Jesus says this, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be opened. For everyone who asks, receives. The one who seeks, finds. And to the one who knocks, the door will be opened. Will only a few be saved, Jesus? Make every effort, agonize, wrestle, struggle to make sure that you're one of the ones that gets saved. That's Jesus' answer. But then he says this, everybody who wants to will be. What do you have to do? Seek, you'll find. Knock, door will be opened. Look for me. I will not hide from you. I will not stay away from you. I will be near to you. In fact, in Revelation, he says, I stand at the door and knock. And anybody who hears my voice, all he has to do is enter and I will come in and I will eat with him. I will dine with her. I will be there. I want you to win. I want you to succeed. I want you to get this. You just gotta want me. You just gotta pursue me. You just gotta let me in. And then notice what Jesus says next reveals something about God the Father. Verse nine, which of you, if your son asks for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a snake? Okay, so the obvious implication here is none of you, right? I mean, this is obvious, right? I, I've taught on this verse before. None of you, if your son says, oh, daddy, I'm so hungry, will you just give me some bread? None of you, maybe the extreme pranksters out there, but none of the good dads, okay? None of you are gonna walk outside and grab a rock and give it to your kid and say, eat it. It'll make you feel better. No, you wouldn't do that. Your kid says, I'm hungry. You say, how can I help, son? Can I take you to McDonald's? Okay, that may not help. But, you know, can I get you some food? Whatever it is, can I, can I help in some way? Or, or if your kid comes to you and says, oh, dad, please give me a fish. I'll give you a fish. Here's a fish, and you hand him a snake. You wouldn't do that. Why? The snake would hurt him. 
And here's Jesus' point. He goes on, he says, if you then, though you are evil, if you know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give good gifts to those who ask him? Ask, seek, knock, pursue, and you'll, look, you'll get what you're looking for. This is so powerful. Okay, so just drink in the meaning of what Jesus is saying to us. Drink in the meaning. As a good parent, you know that these two extremes are true, right? If your children are hungry and they need fish or bread and you give them stones or snakes, that doesn't make you a good parent. And Jesus says, look, you're not even God. You're not even good. You, you're a sinner. And yet you know how to do good. How much more so God who is always good all the time. But go further than that. Don't you also as a parent know that if you give your kid too much, that's not good for them either? I mean, look, don't get me wrong. I like to buy my kids ice cream. I like to go play ultimate Frisbee and um, I, I go over to the park and on my way home, I always call my wife and say, hey, you want me to stop and get ice cream for everybody? I love to spoil my kids. But if I give them ice cream at every single meal, every single day, is that good for them either? If every time my kid wants to buy a video game, I say yes, is that good for them? If every toy my kid longs for, I give them, is that good for them? So what does all this mean? Well, if I, as a, as a dad who is a sinner, doesn't always get it right, but understands that when my kids need food, they get it, but my kids need limits also, don't you think your heavenly father knows that? What, what exactly do we mean? What, what, are you, what are you saying, Matt? What I'm saying is, when we pause and draw into the presence of God, we are trusting that God is good. He is very good. He is for you. He wants you to win. But he, we are discerning and trusting that he will make the right decisions about what we get and what is best for us. He's not gonna give us things that we can't handle. He's not gonna give us more than we know what to do with because he's a good father and he loves you. And if he gives you a lot, an abundance of some sort, then you know it's because he trusts by entrusting to you those resources to repurpose for his kingdom. He's a good father. He wouldn't do something that hurts you. That's why we find ourselves often in prayer with passages that direct our steps. Like Colossians chapter 4 verse 2, it says this, devote yourselves to prayer, being watchful and thankful. See, when you have this perspective about God, this attitude about God, what we're, devote yourselves to prayer. What Paul is trying to coach us here in Colossians 4 is powerful. Don't just pray once. Pray and keep praying. Pray and pray again and again. And by the way, I only picked a few of these that say the same thing. Because if I were to grab all of them, we'd sit here all day, read it, but they all say the same thing. Devote yourself to pray. Pray and pray. Pray and pray and pray and pray. And be watchful. Watch out. Look for others who need prayer. Pray for them. But then notice this. Watch how often the word thanks or thankful is attached to the concept of prayer. Because when I pray, when I pause my life and I come into the presence of God and I'm trying to ask him to align my heart and my will to his and I'm inviting him to do that, in that moment, I've got to stay thankful. Because while I know that I'm hungry and God's going to meet that need, while I know I have something, I'm laying it before God, I'm trusting him 
And I'm looking at all that he's done. And I know that he's good. And so my prayers go like this. God, thank you. Thank you for all that you've already given me. Thank you for the ways that you're answering these prayers in ways I can't understand yet. And God, if you haven't answered the prayer exactly as I've laid it out here today, God, thank you yet for being good because I know somehow you're working this together for me. One of my favorite songs uh, I love to listen to, and uh, a lot of times what I'll do is I'll just put YouTube on in the background and kind of scroll through a playlist. And there's this one particular song that I love to listen to. And this guy stops in the middle of the song and he gives a testimony. And he says, one night he heard his mom crying. And he grew up really poor. And he said, look, I've told you, the church, about this before. But one night I heard my mom crying and I went over and I just kind of was like eavesdropping, like, uh-oh, is mom okay? Is she sad? Is she scared? Is she hurt? What's going on? And he goes, and mama wasn't crying those kinds of tears. She was crying tears of joy. And she was just praying and crying out and saying, God, I don't have, we don't have everything that we want, but God, everything we have, we know comes from you. And so God, thank you. Thank you for all that you have given us, even though there's more, Father, that I'm laying out before you that I'm asking you to do. That's what it means to be thankful and devoted to prayer. And I'm telling you right now, thankfulness is the key successful pray because if you don't have thankfulness you'll have desires that are unmet and you'll grow bitter with God and you'll start looking around at what everybody else has and you'll say God you gave it to them you gave it to them you gave it to them but God you haven't given it to me and you'll start to think there's something wrong with you there's something wrong with God or there's something broken there and until you gain a heart of contentment that allows you to say God thank you for all that you have given me You'll never arrive where you're trying to get to in your prayer life. First Timothy chapter two, Paul writes to Timothy, verse one, he says, I urge then, first of all, that petitions, prayers, intercession, and thanksgiving be made for all people. Hang on before we get to verse two. Notice this list. Petitions. Don't pray once. Pray and keep praying. You think racism in America is a problem? Pray and keep praying. You got a problem with the way people are treating police officers? Pray and keep praying. You think there's something broken going on in our country? I do too. You worried about who the next president's gonna be? Me too. You worried about our current president, our last president, all of our governors and senators? Me too. Pray for them. You worried about your pastor, your church, the health of America, the morality of America? Me too. Pray and keep praying. Petitions, prayers, intercessions. Get on your knees for someone else and ask God to intercede, but don't forget Thanksgiving. Do not leave out Thanksgiving. God, I know you're good. I know you're good because look, I've got clothes on my back. Father, I know you're good. I got a roof over my head. I got food in my belly. I got a car to drive. God, I know you're good because look at these friends you've surrounded me with. Look at my church family. Look, God, at my spouse. God, look at my kids. Whatever it is, you start listing them out and you change your heart because your heart will grow in contentment and you will change your perspective. God, your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Thank you, God, for all that you have done. But then notice what he says in verse two. For kings and for all those in authority, that we may live peaceful and quiet lives in all godliness and holiness. You make those prayers, you make those petitions, you pray for our country, you pray for your leaders, you pray for those in enforcement, you pray for your friends and your family and your children, the protection of the loved ones, you pray those things. You keep praying 
so that we as Christians can live a life that is pleasing to our Lord. Here's my advice. If I can say one thing as we wrap up our pause series, you keep asking and you keep thanking. You keep asking and you keep thanking. And the more you learn to do that, the better your life will be. Let me close with just one more. Philippians chapter four. Now I know if you're sitting at home and you've been a Christian for a long time, this is an extremely popular passage and you probably already know it and there's a tendency to tune me out. Please don't tune me out. Please don't tune me out because I need to say something about this. Rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again. Rejoice. Let your gentleness be evident to all. The Lord is where? Is he far off? Is he distant? Is he disengaged? Does he not care? Is he covering his ears? Is he not listening? No, where is he? He's near. In fact, the psalmist tells that God is near to the brokenhearted. The more pain going on in your life, the closer God is. So don't be anxious about anything. But in every situation, by prayer and petition, you pray and you keep praying. With thanksgiving, present your request to God. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. This word for thanks, thanksgiving, thankfulness that we've used now in three different passages, it's actually the Greek word eucharistia, eucharistia. It's where our Catholic brothers and sisters get the word eucharist. Now, for those of you who maybe don't have any Catholic background, you don't know this, but the Eucharist is the moment where they celebrate communion. The reason is the early church began to realize that everything that we have here on earth is temporary. It's all going away, all of it. Everything will be left behind. But we who have Jesus Christ have the ultimate hope, the eternal hope. We have everything to be thankful for, everything to be thankful for. Even in this life, if there's temporary struggle, temporary trial, temporary pain, our eternal life is secure in Jesus Christ. So when they would gather together and do these agape feasts, these gatherings of the church body in a home, and they would eat and they would celebrate, and they would break out the juice and the bread, the cracker, and they would celebrate that no matter what is happening around them, no matter what is going on, no matter what prayers are yet to be answered or are being answered to their midst, they know where they're going. And they called it the thankfulness, the thanking. They called it the thank you, God, the Eucharist. The idea being that because Jesus' body was broken, my eternity is secure. Because Jesus' blood was poured out, I could come to God and know that the Heavenly Father is for me. He's with me. And he's in me. What I want to encourage you to do right now is if you haven't already, grab your communion. If you need to, run to your refrigerator, your cabinet. I recommend some sort of cracker without leaven in it, something that best represents Jesus the way they did it in the New Testament. And some sort of juice, the redder, the better. And today, as you take communion, here's the attitude that I want you to have. I want you to have an attitude of thankfulness. Before you give any sort of prayer request to God whatsoever, I want you to literally try to find 10 things, 10 things that you are going to be thankful for. And I just want you to tell God what they are. God, thank you for my house. And thank you for my job. And thank you. 
and just fill in the blanks, 10 things. Thank you for saving me. Thank you for giving me of my sin. Thank you for giving me new life. Thank you for leading me by the Holy Spirit. Whatever they are, at least 10, a minimum of 10. And then take that bread and take that juice and just remember your heavenly Father loves 